welcome to the inaugural episode of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Vizard, and today we're with Charlene O'Hanlon, who's Chief Content Officer for TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, and of course, Digital CXO. Charlene, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's dive in. I know this is a C-level conversation, but I'm sure that most folks are familiar with at least the concept of DevOps to a certain degree. And then we have all this effort for digital business transformation that's been going on since the start of the pandemic. And yet, Google put out a report. They have an arm that analyzes how people are implementing best DevOps practices. And the last time they did this report was 2019, and they put one out about a month or so ago. And it shows that there's only really been like a six-point gain in the number of people or organizations that are considered elite practitioners of DevOps. And it's perplexing to me, given all the focus on digital business transformation of late. So do you think that when people are talking about digital business transformation these days, they're really talking about re-engineering processes at a deep level? Or is it a little more superficial than that? And they're basically going out and picking up a SaaS application from Salesforce or ServiceNow and patting themselves on the back. And that's about the extent of the effort. Yeah, well, that's the tricky thing about using a term such as digital transformation, because it does mean something different to any organization, every organization. The thing I think we have to remember with digital transformation is um, an organization could make do something as simple as adopt a SaaS application and consider themselves digitally transformed. Um, that said, digital transformation isn't uh, a one-and-done deal. And it's an ongoing event, much like doing DevOps. And so when we're talking about elite performers in DevOps, those are ones that you know, might not have picked up the DevOps practices, tools, and technologies uh, over the last you know, 18 months or so since we started the pandemic and we really saw a surge in digital transformation initiatives, um, they might just not have enough time underneath their under their belts to become elite performance. So I think we have seen gains in use of uh, DevOps as a business process and the tools and technologies that kind of come under that umbrella. Um, I, I, I'm I'm surprised that it is only six percent uh, that are six percent more that are elite performers. But I think that has more to do with the fact that there are so many organizations now that have adopted DevOps as part of their digital transformation initiatives, and they're closer to the implementation process, the learning process of under and, and understanding how DevOps is impacting their organization. Once they have that level of understanding, they then can work to uh, implement the processes necessary to, to become, quote unquote, elite performers. I think among business executives, there's a lot of what I call <laughs> web scale company envy. They see that these guys are uh, being able to move faster on a dime in terms of their IT capability. I think one thing they don't appreciate is a lot of those companies spent years becoming mm -hmm. practitioners of DevOps and leveraging this capability. So do you think that maybe we're actually looking at something that feels like a DevOps divide and the haves and the haves nots will find themselves uh, separating in terms of their agility and business capabilities? And this is something C-level execs should be thinking long and hard about. Yeah, I do. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, 
just a, an understanding from the get-go of what it entails and how much time it's actually going to take. You can't just like, I don't know, adopt a tool or, or a, a DevOps tool chain and say, okay, now we're doing DevOps. You got to have, it's so much more, it's culture, it's processes, it's the people, you know, there's, there has to be widespread adoption. Um, otherwise it's destined to fail and it's not something that's going to magically transform your business in three to six months. It is an ongoing process. And to your point, you know, those, those companies that are uh, succeeding using DevOps practices and tools are ones that have been working at it for a while. And, uh, you know, as, like I said, with digital transformation, it's, it's kind of an ongoing process that never really ends. So I think this digital or this DevOps divide um, will exist. And I think it will go great. It will, it will become greater as more organizations either um, stall their DevOps initiatives because they are not seeing immediate results or they don't have a fundamental understanding of what they need to do uh, within under that umbrella of DevOps to uh, to you know to advance their digital transformations and actually see results from it. Yeah, I think one of the hardest part about DevOps is that it is unevenly adopted, and I frankly don't know if that's because uh, certain processes lend themselves more to DevOps than others, or is it just human nature? And organizations should be thinking about maybe identifying who are the best practitioners of DevOps and then replicating that across all their teams. Or if there's just some sort of natural level of DevOps like water that each team kind of finds and whatever they're comfortable with. And I think that's a hard thing to quantify. I don't know if you guys have given that any thought. Yeah, I Yes. I mean, we we take a look at what organizations, uh, you know, kind of fit the profile, if you will, of, of a successful organizations that are utilizing DevOps. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt still around DevOps. And uh, the organizations that are finding the best, uh, re- the, 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 the most results, if you will, from using DevOps uh, processes and tools are those that have um, really gotten uh, buy-in from the uh, entire organization because as an entire organization, they understand the benefits that DevOps can bring to, uh, you know, in terms of automation, in terms of streamlining, in terms of the security uh, or the, uh, the, the, uh, the agility of uh, being able to create these applications faster and more secure by design. And, uh, you know, then we can see there's a direct correlation between those organizations that have that, again, that fundamental understanding and that buy-in to the success that they're seeing with DevOps. Um, But there are, there are a lot of organizations out there that have a developer team that uh, is very happy doing what they're doing. And they really don't believe that uh, DevOps is going to help them too much. Uh, So those are the ones that, you know, we're seeing kind of lag if they even decide to uh, take on a DevOps uh, implementation. All right, a little bit of a shameless plug here, but if you are interested in this topic a little more, you should go visit the DevOps Institute, which is also part of TechStrong Group because they have a lot of data and a lot of best practices and things you should consider and evaluate. Let's move on. 
There's a race on to secure open source software. Google has dropped a million dollars to this project. The Linux Foundation has a, a separate consortium now that's also focused on improving open source software and vendors are contributing money to that. Um, I, my, I guess my initial thought here is, well, we're a little late to the party on doing all this stuff. People have figured out that the software supply chain is a problem, and most of it is based on open source software. And all these different groups that make that software have different levels of uh, security best practices. On the other hand, frankly, I'm not sure that the amount of money being kicked into these kitties is nearly enough to go address this issue. And I feel like vendors that are making money off of the software that half of which is dependent upon open source software, maybe have a deeper obligation here. Should uh, C-level execs start maybe turning the arm or the screw a little bit on these vendors to say, hey, you want us to use this stuff, but you're not really rising to the, meet the security metric that we need. So, uh, you know, the downside to that is, um, you know, how do you enforce something like that? You know, if you, if you tell them you, you really need to do this, it doesn't really mean much. And, you know, if, if you don't have some, I don't know, some action behind it. I think what, uh, what Google is doing is, is admirable. I, I think that uh, as, as an organization, it didn't really have to step up and say, hey, we're going to invest in this. Um, and and we're going to uh, put a million dollars into this initiative. And by the way, this is actually part of a 50, or sorry, not 50, $10 billion uh, commitment that Google has made, um, you know, to open source security in general. So yeah, 1 million doesn't really sound like a lot, but it is part of a much larger kitty that, uh, that Google is, um, you know, kind of putting up to, uh, to ad advance open source security. Um, I, but to your point, I do believe that organizations that are using uh, open source code and really what organization isn't these days, uh, they do have a level of responsibility to make sure that the code that they're using is uh, is is safe and secure. And whether that should be through uh, a, you know some sort of checklist or um, just a wide widespread industry wide. Um, initiative to uh, to you know make sure that all code is secure which is what the Linux Foundation is basically trying to do anyway um, you know th there, there should be some level of responsibility that uh, any organization that is using open source code uh, should bear the question is to your point how much and how do they do that and that's that's a tough one you know we're talking about open source it belongs to everybody and nobody right all right. Well, I think there's going to be some maybe good-natured public shaming in 2022, but we'll see what happens. I think uh, a lot of folks are going to start saying, you know what? You just can't always benefit. You got to give back. We'll see. All right. Let's turn our attention to the workforce, shall we? There's a story over in Forbes talking about how IT is transforming the hiring of nurses, actually using a platform created by a doctor. But the idea here is that the nurses for free put in their who they are, what they're about, and then they get matched with job opportunities around the country. It's not that much different from a lot of different platforms other than the fact that it's specific to nurses. But do you think employees are pretty much as looks like for now in the driver's seats when it comes to figuring out what jobs they want to take and I think there's going to be more of these types of platforms that give the worker more control over their destiny. And 
is this a permanent state of affairs and should C-level executives come to this new reality? Because it feels like maybe they're out of touch. When I look around and I see all these quote unquote open job positions that are out there, it just feels like maybe they're not trying hard enough. Yeah, you know, I had this conversation with somebody else yesterday in the for Tech Strong TV, an interview on Tech Strong TV, and uh, this this gentleman uh, is a is a labor analyst uh, with a company called ThinkY. He's a very very smart guy, um, and he and I talked about uh, labor shortages in different areas and um, what what specific industries are looking at and what specific job uh, titles are are going to be doing well. Um, and we talked about this great skills gap and the fact that so many organizations are not able to find skilled workers. And I said, I asked him, well, we keep hearing about the great resignation. I said, where are all these people going to? You know, everybody's resigning, but you know, it's like, we're not, I said, I wonder if it's just like the great reshuffling rather than the great resignation, because people are going to other jobs. They're, they're, you know, these, these, these jobs are getting filled by other people. Um, but, you know, there remains this, this, this wide, this dearth of, of skilled workers. And I believe that we are going to see um, a lot uh, of industries. Healthcare is one. IT is definitely one where we're going to continue to see shortages for a while, simply because um, it takes time. If you are you know, if you're moving in from another career, if you're making a career change, it takes time to kind of get into those areas. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going to be doing that. Uh, to your question, whether we're going to continue to see this, if, it, if it's going to be a, pr a permanent thing, uh, I don't think so. I think this is kind of a blip in time. And I think uh, based on uh, what I spoke with uh, yesterday with Dave, I, I think that it's going to be uh, something that as the economy kind of settles out, um, you know, from the result of, of you know, the, the COVID and, and the ramifications thereof and, and how it pretty much turned uh, the way companies work on their head. Uh, and we do recognize the impact that technology has had on that. I think we're going to, you know, we're going to start to see things kind of settle into, quote unquote, the way things were, the, a little bit more traditional uh, method of hiring and, and, and certainly less uh, uh, movement between uh, jobs for workers. But it's an interesting, very, very interesting time to uh, to kind of watch the job market and see where uh, what people are doing. Because I, I got to tell you, I don't think that they're all sitting on top of a mountain somewhere contemplating their lives. It's I, I think it's more about the, you know, the money right now. And that is where the uh, that's where I believe the, the employees actually have the upper hand right now. So maybe folks just need to cough up some more dollars for some talent. But I think it really is shifting permanently. I think organizations need to think about HR as a talent management function. And they also need to think more like a general manager of a sports franchise where you're building out farm systems and you know where your next few players are going to come from. And you kind of have that thought process in place because if you really want to compete, even in this great era of automation, you need that skilled talent. And if you don't have it, you're just not going to be able to keep up with the next guy and you will start to fall behind. And then the next thing, you know, you become this place where, you know, the, the local scuttlebutt is you just don't want to work there because, you know, they're just way, way too old school and that becomes mm -hmm. part of the problem. 
Well, I do believe that HR really needs to be uh, much more involved in the process and not just in hiring, but also in retaining quality talent. And I do believe also that a good number of the people who are resigning these days maybe weren't great are uh, workers to begin with. And, um, you know, maybe they, they just didn't like what they were doing and, and they decided that uh, they go, go work somewhere else that was better for their, a better fit for what they wanted to do. I think that's going to be, um, you know, that that's going to be kind of the, the major theme for, for a little while, we're going to see kind of a shakeout. Um, but that said, uh, to keep uh, retain those high quality employees that companies have, they need to really focus on the employee experience and not, uh, you know, some somewhat akin to like the customer experience. Uh, the employee experience is going to become that much more important as we move forward, and uh, and you know, taking into account working environments, uh, both. A, in the office, hybrid, remote work, all of those, uh, all of those things have dire implications for whether uh, an employee wants to stick around in their current job or, uh, you know, be a part of the big, the great migration. All right. Well, the great resignation is for real, but a lot of people stay with their job, even though they probably think that they're going to quit at least twice a day. But hopefully, things get. Sometimes they just get better eventually. Let's move on to this video that's also going to be on the site. And it's also an article on DevOps.com, but it's a survey from Transposite talking about the relationship between CIOs and CTOs. And this discussion has been going on for decades now. But I think with this whole shift to digital business transformation, there needs to be more clarity between the two roles. In some organizations, the CTO is kind of driving the external facing digital business processes and the CIO does the internal facing IT. In other organizations, it's more about the CIO speaks to the business while the CTO takes care of all the infrastructure. There's no right or wrong model per se. I think the important thing though right now is just clarity. And I wonder if this really is a two-person job or can a single CIO or CTO handle it all these days? What do you think? I think that uh, there's still a lot of uh, confusion, to be perfectly honest. Um, the CIO role, the CTO role, there is some overlap. And to your, case, to your point, whether it needs to be two people, yeah, I think it depends on the organization and, and how they uh, they have it structured and how large the organization is and how much responsibility CIOs have versus uh, CTOs. Um, it's it's something that CTOs, uh, you know, that's kind of a relatively new within like, you know, the last 20 years or so um, job title. CIOs, uh, you know, have been around longer. Um, but uh, especially those organizations that are more... Um, that have been around for a long time that are monolithic in, in general or in nature and haven't really embraced a lot of the digital transformation processes uh, until very recently, uh, you know, maybe just having a CIO is, is good enough. Um, but I, right now, I think we really need to define the job responsibilities of a CIO and a CTO uh, on, on just, you know, a broad platform, it, it, because obviously it's going to be a little different within an organization, but generally we know what a chief marketing officer does. We know what a chief 
per people officer does. We know what a, you know, what a chief revenue officer does, but it's, it's much more muddy when you're talking about CIOs and CTOs, what exactly what they do. So I think once we get clarity, uh, it'll be an easier question to answer until then. Uh, I think organizations need to kind of feel their way, figure out which uh, which approach works best for them to have, you know, two people in that role or one one kind of comprehensive role. And if you have two people, it may just be the nature of their personalities and what they bring to bear as well. And sometimes you may only need one and other times you may have two, depending on what kind of skills you have and where we are. But speaking of clarity, I want to ask you, can digital transformation save Christmas Looks like all the elves are somehow or other not getting enough stuff into the supply chain and people are pointing to either the fact that there's some alleged number of large tankers sitting out in the ocean that aren't getting unloaded and other folks are pointing to COVID and saying that the supply chain is a mess because all these people weren't available to build all this stuff six or seven or eight months ago. Either way, is there some way to start thinking about in the in, in what do we have, like four or five weeks? to save this Christmas holiday with some maybe advanced analytics to optimize that supply chain, or is it just going to be too little too late? (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going with gift cards for Christmas this year because (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. It's like, I'm not even going to worry about whether something is in stock. It's like, here, here's a gift card. Go, you go deal with it. Um, But no, uh, in all seriousness, it, yeah, I don't know. I think I think we may be a little too little too late on Christmas this year. Um, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of disappointed folks who can't get, uh, you know, the uh, especially the electronics that they're looking for. And I know there's this rush to, you know, there's they're saying in the news that please now go do your buy your shopping now. If you see it, buy it because it's not going to be around for Christmas. And part of my soul is like, oh come on, how bad could it be? You know. And then I know. December 15th, I'll be running around going, I can't find anything. But uh, automation, you know, well, we talk a lot about just-in-time automation or just-in-time manufacturing. And a lot of people are pointing the finger at that. And because somewhere along the way, just-in-time manufacturing kind of changed from having uh, all these different parts available to, you know, put something together when, when it's necessary, not put it together and then have it sit on a shelf for you know, however long it takes before something before it gets ordered and, and shipped out. Um, but somewhere along the line, we kind of forgot about the the, the part where all of all of the, the, the components in a manufacturing process actually have to be close to the source. So uh, and, and so when we're now sourcing components from all over the world, it really messes up just in time manufacturing when one part of the world shuts down or the component is somehow not available because of shipping issues or something like that. That is what's messing us up. And I don't think any amount of automation is going to help in the next four months uh, or three months uh, help help save Christmas this year. I'm, I'm just afraid it's going to be gift cards for everybody. All right. Well, I kind of like the gift card idea because uh, what you can really do is take care of two holidays at once. You can say Merry Christmas when you give the gift card. And since they probably won't get whatever it is that they're going to buy till Easter, you can say Happy Easter in the same card. And it's all good. (laughs) 
Well, that's kind of the cheapskate thing, way of thinking about it. But hey, you do you, man. <laughs> All right. But I think you are right in that there will be a lot more manufacturing moving closer to the sources of consumption. I think people have been talking about that idea for a while. And as that does evolve, we will see a lot of digital transformation around those processes, a lot of robotics, and just rethinking the whole supply chain from end to end. Charlene, thank you for being on this inaugural episode. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. And on the digital CXO website, you'll find complete episodes as well as show notes with the links to the stories we discussed. And you can also follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you all next time.